Good morning, Bethel. All right, so our scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah 55. And so if you could turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 55, you can find our passage on page 615 if you're using the Pew Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the pew before, in front of you. So please turn to page 615. And if you wouldn't mind, please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that, you did, not, that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is God's word. You may be seated. All right. So in 1970... Americans spent about $6 billion on fast food. And in 2001, more than $110 billion. And in 2015, twice that. Twice the $110 billion, at least. Okay, so keep that in mind. And now think about this statistic, which... All the qualifications with statistics. Who knows, who knows how big the sample was, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but still there's some truth here. What percentage of Americans believe fast food is not good for you? What would you guess? About 76%. Does eating fast food increase the risk of diabetes? One study showed that eating fast food twice or more each week can increase the likelihood of type 2 diabetes by anywhere from 40 to 70%. In another study, the risk of dying from heart disease increased by 20% for people who eat fast food once a week and nearly 80% for those who eat it four times a week or more. 
Okay, more encourage, encouraging news here, okay? From a book called Fast Food Nation, The Dark Side of the All-American Meal. About 90% of the money that Americans spend on food is used to buy processed food. But the canning, freezing, and dehydrating techniques used to process food destroy most of its flavor. Since the end of World War II, a vast industry has arisen in the U.S. to make processed food palatable. Without this flavor industry, today's fast food industry could not exist. The names of the leading American fast food chains and their best-selling menu items have become famous worldwide, embedded in our popular culture. Few people, however, can name the companies that manufacture fast food's taste, like in a little tube. International flavors and fragrances is the world's largest flavor company. IFF's Snack and Savory Lab is responsible for the flavor of potato chips, corn chips, breads, crackers, breakfast cereals, and pet food. The Confectionery Lab devises flavors for ice cream, cookies, candies, toothpaste, mouthwashes, and antacids. One of the most widely used color additives, whose presence is often hidden by the phrase color added, violates a number of religious dietary restrictions, may cause allergic reactions in susceptible people, and comes from an unusual source. Ready for this one? You're going to be so happy to go eat this afternoon. Um, actually, this might change where you go. Cochineal extract, also known as carmine or car carminic acid, I don't know if I'm saying that right, is made from the desiccated bodies of female Dactylopius coccus costa, a small insect harvested mainly in Peru in the Canary Islands. The bug feeds on red cactus berries, and the color from the berries accumulated in the females and their unhatched larvae. The insects are collected, dried, and ground into pigment. It takes about 70,000 of them to produce one pound of carmine, which is used to make processed foods look pink, red, or purple. Dan and Strawberry Yogurt, this book is a little dated, but yes, they still use it, um, gets its color from carmine, as does Oikos Greek Strawberry and Activia. Sorry, you thought those were the healthier ones. Um, as do many frozen fruit bars, candies, fruit fillings, and ocean spray pink grapefruit juice drink. Okay, why do I share all that? Aren't you so glad you came this morning? So what if that's a parable of how we feed our souls? You've heard this quote probably a couple times over the years um, here. If we, C.S. Lewis, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So if you had to describe your spiritual diet over the past month or the past year, how would you describe it? well-balanced, high in spiritual protein and good fats and fiber, or high in saturated fats and high in refined sugars, whatever the spiritual equivalent would be, highly processed, lots of snack food, and perhaps a fair amount of junk food. So maybe, maybe we need to listen to the one who made us, who knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what will do our souls good. He knows what our souls, are, our being is meant to run on and thrive on. We need a spiritual dietitian, okay? So whatever your spiritual diet, we all need to hear and heed Isaiah 55. And actually, it's really good news, even though it steps on our 
toes. So let's look at point number one. Come eat what is good, verses one to three. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So that first word translated come should actually be something like, hey, or attention, everyone, okay? It's actually not the verb to come, that first word. It's like, hey, anybody thirsty? You got you to think of the guy at the Phillies game, okay? Hey, ice cold Coke here. You know that guy? There's that one guy that says, Stella. Any Phillies fans? You can hear him like halfway across the stadium. wish I could yell like that. But anyway, so first it's just getting your attention. Hey, over here. And then you have this verb to come three times. Come to the waters. These waters, that's where thirsty people get satisfied and say, that's how your soul gets satisfied. So he's getting our attention. And how great is it that you don't need any money to come to get this spiritual satisfaction. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But wait, we're told here to buy and eat. So without money, but then buy and eat. And this is not just soup kitchen fare. This is wine and milk, which original context, we have some of this, but just connotations of richness. This stuff is costly, and yet it's free. So... What would you think? Costly but free, somebody else must have footed the bill. Exactly. You know where we are in Isaiah? We're two chapters after Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant, our Messiah, Jesus himself, became our substitute. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we get healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and we are pardoned, and we gain his righteousness. Paul wrote similarly in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heavenly glory, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you and I, by his poverty, incarnation, his suffering and death might become rich, rich with the mercy of God that was purchased for us by Jesus. So he paid our debt. He was impoverished that we might be enriched. So what's left but to come and enjoy what he purchased for us? So this invitation is meant to get our attention. Hey, and it's meant for everyone. Come, at least everyone who's thirsty, right? which is actually everyone. The only difference among people is where they go to slake their thirst. So this thirst, this is like a part of every human soul. This desire to be satisfied, to be happy, to know life. And that thirst drives some people to prudishness, and some people to porn. It drives some people to strict self-discipline and insane workouts. It drives others to laziness and self-indulgence, this thirst. It drives some people to medicate with food 
and it drives other people to starve themselves. It drives some people to be freakishly frugal and others to be selfishly indulgent. I mean, the list could go on and on. TV, alcohol, drugs, video games, investing, gambling, hobbying. What's your drug of choice, your soul food to slake the inner thirst? Well, whatever it is, here's the question we need to ponder. Verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? I mean, no wonder we're often so spiritually poor and exhausted. We're running to the wrong well. We're trying to slake our thirst at the bottom of a broken cistern. Broken cisterns don't hold any water. Listen to uh, Jeremiah Burroughs. There's a book, old book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love this quote. The reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you haven't got enough of them. That's kind of the lie we believe all the time. That's not the reason. But the reason is because those things, they're not proportional to the immortal soul of yours that's capable of God himself. Many think that when they're troubled and have, got, have not got contentment, it's because they have but a little of this, that. I mean, it could be relational, neediness, or financial, or health, whatever it is. They think it's because they have a little in the world, and if they had more, better marriage, better, more money, whatever, then they would be content. That is just as if a man were hungry, and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in the wind, and then should think that the reason why he's not satisfied is because he's not got enough of the wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. So, What's the most significant population, typically, that needs help knowing what's good for them? Children, right? They're the people who most often don't know what's good for them. So guess what? We all need to humble ourselves and realize the foolish little children we are. And let's listen to our Heavenly Father. He loves us. He knows what's good for us way better than we know ourselves. And he wants to give it to us. Listen to Psalm 81. It's in the context of the Exodus, you know, bringing people out of slavery and providing for them in the wilderness. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's the heart of God. (laughs) But the next verse says, but my people didn't listen to my voice. They wouldn't submit to me. That's the danger that we hear the offer and we don't listen. And so there's urgency here. Come now. But the urgency is all to get us to come to be satisfied, to be delighted. It's an invitation to a feast. And this feast is actually a feast that you eat with your ears. Okay, look at the rest of verse 2 and verse 3. Listen diligently to me and eat What is good? And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So are you thirsty? Is it gnawing at you? Do you know this experience? Like aching for something, longing for something, feeling dissatisfied, needy. 
could it be that the problem that's awakening that dissatisfaction, um, whether it's loneliness or financial need or boredom or aimlessness or whatever, I think oftentimes we think that's the problem, but what if you and I are actually supposed to be thirsty? What if all those things are, are, are supposed to, to leave us still thirsty? Even if we get them, they leave us still thirsty. And our troubles awaken need as well. So what if that's intentional? What if that's exactly where God wants you to be? In a place where you can experience, it's like the perfect conditions. Thirst is the perfect condition to experience how sweet the water is, the satisfaction is. So what if our frustrations, our dissatisfaction is intended to be a clue to the fact that only God himself, by the grace of Jesus, is big enough, great enough, good enough to satisfy our souls? doesn't matter how wide you open your mouth, wind will never satisfy your hunger. So Jesus says instead, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 7, 37, Jesus cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So the gospel is for everyone and anyone, and the only qualification is that you need to be thirsty. And all you have to have is nothing to bring to the transaction. Isn't that encouraging? How's that for you? Are you okay with with those terms? All you need to do is come like a parched hiker to a mountain stream. How hard is that? (laughs) Is that so hard? Is that burdensome? Isn't it crazy that we need to be convinced? Why do you labor? Do you see it? We're nuts. I'm crazy. Sin is crazy. And yet, how kind of God to persistently persuade us because he wants to lead us to green pastures and quiet waters. He wants to set a table for us in the presence of our enemies where our cup will overflow, but there's only one way to that table. So it's for everyone, totally inclusive, but there's only one way to it. So point number two, look at verses three to five. Incline your ear and come to me, to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you. People outside the covenant are going to come into these benefits because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So this rich feast for our souls only comes through David. Okay, through the son of David, ultimately. Flip back to 2 Samuel. Uh, well, you know what? For time, just listen. 2 Samuel 7, you can look at it later, verses 12 to 16. God promised to establish David's throne and kingdom forever. Okay, through one of his offspring. Listen to verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, early in Isaiah, we heard... You can flip back to this one. It'll be easy to find. Chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Early in Isaiah, we heard this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government 
He's going to be a king. And of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the Messiah was exalted to the highest place as King of kings and Lord of lords through humbling himself as the suffering servant to the lowest place by becoming a slave and dying the death we deserve on the cross. So all the richness and satisfaction of the grace of God at this feast in the kingdom of God with all the promises of God, both now and forever, are all available but only available to us through Jesus. So have you come to him? Will you come? Don't you want to come? And you know that we keep coming, right? Like even if you (laughs) already came to this table, it's not like it's a once and done thing. Don't you want to come again and again and again to have your soul satisfied with rich food? I mean, unless you yawn at the offer and prefer to keep trying to milk this world's temporary, unsatisfying, precarious, shakable, fragile, passing away kingdom for all it's worth. If you want to keep trying to milk that, you can, but your soul's going to starve. You remember that parable that Jesus told in, in Luke 14? A man once gave a great banquet and invited many, and at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who'd been invited, come, everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field, and I've got to go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I've got to go examine them. Property, business, I'm, I'm too busy. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame, people that know that they're poor, people that know that they're needy. So the servant accomplished everything, chapter 53. Now we must respond, chapter 55. Come and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Delight yourself in rich food. And when you do, you're going to be happy. Remember last week, the church, John Calvin said it, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. And you know what? When you've done it again and wandered and tried to find your satisfaction somewhere else, you get unhappy, but then you hear this call and you come back and you get fed by the grace of Jesus, it cheers you up, doesn't it? <laughs> and then you sing, and you give thanks to the one who's cheered you up. So I, I don't know, have you ever had this experience where maybe you benefited from someone's generosity and you actually didn't know who to thank? Like maybe it's a party with this incredible spread, or, or you, you, know, you just love the food and you've got to find out who made this thing or who provided it or who paid for it. And so you say something like, who do I thank for this? Well, if you're a Christian, (laughs) you have totally undeservedly been rescued from the domain of darkness, slavery to sin. You've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. All your sins are paid for. You've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. 
You have this living hope that can't be killed by anyone or any circumstance on earth. No one can separate you from the love of God in Christ. God's going to work all things together for good for you. You're not going to hell anymore. You don't have to face death with fear or uncertainty or as ultimate loss. Who do we have to thank for this? It all comes through the Son of David, our forever King, Messiah Jesus. No wonder life should be characterized by Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that would be a good thing to keep in mind as we come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes. But I want to know, are any of you, I want you to think, well, I want to know. I do want to know, but I'm appealing to any of you that might be in this category. Are you on the fence? Is anybody on the fence here? Anyone can get in on this. Do you see how good it is? Do you hear how good it is? Anyone can get in on this. But the time is now. Decisions need to be made. This passage is urgent. It's not a time for indecisiveness. This is definitely not a time to hold out for a better offer. There isn't one. It's not a time to say, I'll deal with that later. Because you don't know how long while he may be found or while he is near will last. And you know what? Christianity is not just adding Jesus like an option, like an add-on. He's not a religious garnish on the side of our lives. He is our life. So the passage here, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. You have to repent and turn from every other competing satisfaction, every other competitor. But again, that total repentance and forsaking that is not burdensome. It shouldn't be because to forsake our wicked ways and thoughts is to simply forsake, you know, like the spiritual equivalent of little dissected red bugs, you know, for food. To forsake our futile efforts at finding soul satisfaction anywhere but in God. So it's ceasing to spend on and labor for that which does not satisfy. You see that as far as the flow of thought here? So doing that, repenting, forsaking, is not just saying some rote words or a formula prayer. You actually return home to a person, to the Lord, to your God and Father. Do you see how it says, let him return to the Lord at the end of verse 7, the the second half of verse 7. No reason to hesitate or cower. Return to the Lord because he's going to have compassion on him. To our God, he will abundantly pardon. This sounds just like Luke 15, the prodigal son who's far away and he he comes home. The father is waiting. He sees his his son coming and he runs to meet him and has compassion on him. Compassion just wells up. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. So there's no one too bad for the good news. Our God will abundantly pardon those who return to him for mercy. And you know what? The father didn't make that prodigal son work for five years to prove his repentance before he threw a party. He threw the party. Proverbs 28, 13 is is great. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And you know why? Because the Lord is not like us. Look at verses 8 and 9. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. What's, what's the context going here? Like, where, how does that fit in here? I think this is what's going on. We can't project our grudge-holding, hard-to-please thoughts onto God. His approval and smile is not a moving target. Your dad or mom's approval might have been a moving target, but God's is not. Your dad or mom or some so-called friend might have burned you with undeserved rejection, painful rejection, but God won't. Those dynamics, moving target, you know, approval, whatever, that's the stuff that keeps people from drawing near, being transparent, taking a risk, being honest and candid and open with another person, right? The fear of the reaction, fear of the response or the lack of response. And if we project that on God, like Alice Ho, not really Alice Ho, but the person in the video with the one talent, projecting this hard character onto God, she buried her talent. It all came down to her view of God, which is a false view. So if we project that kind of attitude onto God, that he cannot or will not, or at least not with me, be merciful, we'll never seek him. It'll be self-fulfilling prophecy. Here's the good news. God is not a great big one of us. He's not like us. That's really good news. He lays it out here in big, bold letters, like the big E on the I chart. He wants us to be sure of him. He's not a reluctant blesser. He is not a moody grudge holder. His smile is not a moving target. He may be hard to satisfy, but he is easy to please. You can go think about that one for the rest of your life. Easy to please. Just but without faith, it's impossible to please God. All you gotta do is trust Him. So, this is an urgent call to come to the feast of the Lord purchased by the blood of Jesus. And when we come, we seek a person, not just answers merely or wisdom or blessings apart from Him. We come to Him, return to Him. So, the God of the universe wants you and me to come to Him. He wants to satisfy our souls. He wants to draw us into this rich, deep, satisfying relationship with him. So he himself is the greatest treasure. He is the most satisfying feast. He is the river of delights. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So when you seek the Lord, when you come thirsty to him, here's the point. You can expect to find what you're seeking. You can expect to be satisfied. Don't doubt. That's what this passage is all about. Don't hesitate. Don't say, it won't make any difference. I've tried before. That kind of doubt is self-fulfilling prophecy. Stand on this word and expect God to make good on it. He tells you so. Look at where it goes. Last point. His word, the word, will do its miracle work. Verses 10 to 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, it's successful, it does its work. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It doesn't come back empty-handed. But it shall, look at all these shalls. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So 
What's it sent out for? And, and we'll see that in verse 12. But by the way, just this is an encouraging note. Many of you have labored for many years in different ministries, maybe children's ministry, VBSs, Awana, and maybe you don't see much fruit, or maybe you've shared the gospel with lots of people and it doesn't seem like there's much fruit. This is a really important promise to keep hold of because it's not in vain. And you don't know what God has done with your faithful sharing of his word over the years. Okay, verse 12. For you shall, this is what it's going to accomplish, you shall go out in joy. Exodus deliverance. You'll be freed. For freedom Christ has set you free. You shall be led forth in peace. In fact, actually, literally, in, in Hebrew, the emphasis is, for in joy you shall go out. In peace you'll be led forth. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn, no more curse, right? The undoing of the curse shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it, this renewed creation, shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So do you see what's going on here? The word will renew you if you come and eat it. It just will. It's not an empty word. It's a powerful word. It's like miracle grow. <laughs> we will be set free. We will be delivered. We will grow. We will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. I love what Paul Tripp writes about this. He says, when the word of God, faithfully taught by the people of God and empowered by the spirit of God, falls down, people become different. Lusting people become pure. Fearful people become courageous. Thieves become givers. Demanding people become servants. Angry people become peacemakers. Complainers become thankful. And idolaters come to joyfully worship the one true God. The ultimate purpose of the word of God is not theological information, but heart and life transformation. And not only will the word renew you and me, it will also renew the world. The word of God doesn't just describe the future of a new heavens and a new earth. It is going to bring it about. Behold, I'm making all things new. <laughs> just like he made the world with omnipotent words, he's going to remake the world by his word. One day all things are going to be made new, the reversal of the curse, complete undoing of the curse. So here's how we're going to close before we participate in communion. Um, it's a song by a guy named Andrew Peterson. It's called the Sower Song. And just a really quick little orientation. The words are going to be on the screen. It's in three movements. You got to track with the movements. It's really important. Okay? I think this is an encouraging kind of way to close here, hopefully. So it starts out, and he talks about how he needs to be, um, like the, the soil of his life needs to be broken up so that more fruit and growth can be produced. That's, that's what we need. We need to grow. We need to bear fruit. We need to, to come to the feast and eat and watch the word do its work. So that's kind of like almost a little melancholy. It's a little sober. And then you'll hear the music change, and, and there's all these awesome promises from Isaiah 55 about how everything's going to be made new. 
And it's like, this is awesome. It builds hope and confidence. But then we realize, ah, I live like day in and day out. And wisely as an artist, it ends very pedestrian with a little phrase, and the sower leads us. In other words, the path to the day when all things are made new is an ordinary one. Following the sower, letting his word take its root, and organic growth is slow. So we need the grand vision to keep us walking, but we also need to be realistic and know that it's organic, slow growth. So this song, I think, is so encouraging. So listen to the words from the end of the Bible here in Revelation 22 as we are dismissed. The Spirit and the bride say to Jesus, the one who's coming soon, come. And let the one who hears say, come. That's you and me. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Go in peace.